We're turning back to the book of 1 John, and we move on to the third chapter, uh, 1 John and chapter 3. I hope that this book has been growing on you and that you have begun to appreciate the depths and the amazing work of the new birth, the power of God to take a sinner, an Adamic sinner, depraved, unclean, and to make us to be children of God. This is the amazing thing. Let's read together this third chapter. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. And he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, 
How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Amen. May the Lord use his word and bless it to our own souls tonight. Father in heaven, we thank thee for the fellowship we enjoy here tonight. We thank thee for the word of God that is open before us. And I want to thank thee personally, O Lord, for the great blessing this book has been to me, that you have opened up my mind and heart to precious things that just delight my soul. And I pray, O Lord, that it will please thee to transmit something of that blessing to each heart here tonight, that your people will take your word and rejoice in it and be able to rest in it and even to pray over it, and that their lives will be greatly enriched. We put not our trust in our own abilities, but we know that we are but clay vessels. And yet, Lord, you take that clay vessel and you put this glorious gospel and you glorify your name by serving up the truths of Christ and the gospel in a very meager way. O oh, God, be pleased to come and minister to us. I pray for help from heaven. I beseech thee to be my mouth and help tonight. In the Savior's name, amen. Amen. As we enter into chapter 3 tonight, we have to remember that the theme of the book is fellowship, partnership, joined up with the Lord, and that started in chapter 1, verse 3. We have uh, learned of uh, chapter 1 is the how, the how, and the three revelations we learned of in chapter 1. Chapter 2 is what happens, and you remember the 10 things in chapter 2 of what happens when a a sinner is born of the Spirit, and his life is marvelously changed. Tonight in chapter 3, it is by whom? By whom are we born again? By whom are we brought into this fellowship? And of course, it is all of God. And that begins with this exclamation in the chapter, Behold the note of surprise! Behold! What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 
Now that word behold, the backdrop is the previous verse, which shows us that our God is a God of righteousness, a God of strict judgment. And yet, behold, surprise, it is he that has bestowed this love upon us. And so, this shows us that God is the author of it. You'll see that the word bestowed is given, and it's the word gifted. It's done once, and it's done fully. It's not piecemeal. It says in verse 2, Now are we the sons of God. And if you were here this morning, you will remember the importance of the word now. It is ours now, not over time. Right at this time, we are sons of God. And then in verse 2, it also says that the greater change is yet to come. Translated into God's family, sons of God, but there's a greater change to come. We're told it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we do know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. What a tremendous surprise. And we are in for a wonderful surprise when we see the king in all his marvelous beauty. And we are going to be like him. Now, the commentators have a difficulty of telling us whether it is the Lord Jesus or the Father. At this time in my study, I'm inclined to think this refers to the Father. This relates on to him. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Then going to verse 9, you will see again, uh, whosoever is born of God. He's the author. He's the one who gives birth to his children. And that contrasts in verse 10, the children of the devil. And so there is this great chasm, this difference, children of God versus children of the devil. Verse 16 we're told hereby we perceive the love of God. We get it. We get the message. And then in verse 24, hereby we know in heart. That's the word gnosko. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So this chapter, and we have just done a cursory run down it, is the chapter of assurance. It's all about the certainty of being children of God. Now, when I field calls from radio listeners, the biggest number of requests or queries I receive is from people who lack assurance. They have all manner of histories and backgrounds and ministries and 
understanding of things, but the bottom of their issue is not only how am I saved, but how can I know that I am saved? Now, those are two different things when you think about it. How can I be saved? That's the plan of salvation. But how can I know that I am saved? And this is a great chapter to really dwell upon to answer the issues that come up in this passage. Sometimes I think preachers spend all their time trying to convince people that they're not saved. And they get people into theological knots and problems. And they raise all these kind of standards and issues to prove to them that they might not ever have been truly born again. They would become ministers of doubt. That's hardly good news. And the thing that strikes me about this book of John is that John has no hesitation to say to his readers, now are we the children of God. It's a ministry of certainty. It's a ministry of assurance. And he says to his readers in a a general epistle like this, we're born of God. Ye are now the children of God. And so there's no way that John is trying to hold back the blessing of that personal assurance of God's salvation. And so as we look at this chapter tonight, we need to deal with this subject, how can we know? How can we know that we are truly born of God? Now, it means that we are moved. We are moved in new ways. We are moved to be like God. That's the first one. And we're coming to verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself. When you are born of God, you are moved to be like God. That's your new desire. We call this holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness. And that, as we have noted, out of the big surprise that God, who is the God of righteousness. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 29. If ye know that he is righteous... Ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And then he goes on to talk about, behold, what manner of love. This is amazing. The God of righteousness. He moves us. He converts us. He puts within our hearts this new nature, this new desire to be like him. And we're not trying to drop the standard. We're not trying to lower the benchmark of how a Christian should live or how a Christian should walk. And you remember John 1, walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the standard. And so we as professing Christians have no right to change the standard. 
We have no right to water it down or to make it any less. We are to be like God, pure and holy and righteous as our Heavenly Father is righteous. Now, the second surprise of these opening verses is that we don't know all that the future holds as sons of God, but that we shall be changed into his likeness. We want righteousness now. We want to be like him. But we are yet going to be changed into his glorious nature. Now, this is the power and the miracle of the new birth adoption into God's family. Now, in earthly family adoption, this cannot happen. If we as parents were to go to an orphanage and choose a little boy or girl to become our family member, we can set our hearts upon a child, bring them home, clean them up, put on the clothes that we like, comb their hair as we want their hair to be combed, and we can try and give them the etiquette and the lessons and decorum that we want in our home. But what if the child has red hair? What if the child has a totally different physique? What if it's an African child or a Chinese child or an indigenous child to have the likeness of the parent and to have that nature of the parent is beyond us. Now we can love the child and be good to the child, but we cannot expect that one day that child will turn out to be ditto like us. But when we are born into God's family, we are born to be conformed to the image of his son. Romans 8.29. That's the whole purpose of our redemption. And that's in this world. We are changed here and now. And then in glory, we're going to receive new bodies. We're going to be shining in the brilliance and the beauty of the Lord our God. Verse 2 says, we shall see him as he is. We shall see him and we shall be like him. As you let that sink in, all you can say is, wow. Wow. And wow. For the Christian, the best is yet to be. And with that hope, that thrilling hope, there is born into our hearts the drive to be pure. That's what the scripture says. Verse 3, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And in every child of God, 
and given this hope of glory with God, there is a burning zeal to be holy. That's why in the bygone years they had holiness meetings. They were appealing to Christians. And many of different theological bents were drawn into holiness meetings. I want to be holy. And that gave rise to Pentecostal meetings. There were gifts and experiences that were promised that would make you like God. It was appealing. Because anyone who has a new nature wants to be changed more and more. And you can understand how a young Christian who is full of zeal for the Lord, when they hear from a pulpit that you can be enjoy all of these great experiences, they get drawn into them. Many of them are spurious. Many of them are not what is real sanctification, but human-driven. But here in this chapter, verses 3 right on down to, to verse 8, you see how there is this new purity. And what is the standard of that purity? Verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. We now learn what sin is. And we hate it. And ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. This is a new nature now. Now it doesn't mean that you're sinless. But means that you are no longer craving constantly to follow the ways of sin but rather you want to be delivered from it and changed more and more. You're grieved by sin and you hate it with all your heart. Verse 7, little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. That's the new nature. That's the seed born of the Spirit of God within our own souls. Now, our Lord Jesus illustrated this in Matthew 7 with the illustration of by their fruits, ye shall know them. Can an evil tree bring forth good fruit? Does a good tree bring forth evil fruit? And it is not the fruit, it's the root. When you're born of God, you've got a new nature, and you bring forth that true fruit. The evidence is in the fruit and assurance comes from a believer striving for more purity. And so if someone says, I need to know if I am saved, if I am born again, one of the questions we must ask, do you want to be godly? Do you want to be more and more changed into the righteous character of God? The answer will be yes. If the person says, I have no interest whatsoever, I want my sin, I want the world, I want to live for the flesh and all that it offers. 
then we can give absolutely no assurance that that person is a child of God. And I have to say that to you tonight as well. If your heart has been so moved that you hate sin and you want to be free from it and you want to be changed more and more in the purity of the gospel, to walk in the light as the Lord is in the light, then that is a proof that you are born of God. We move to verse 11 to 16, and we're going to move to another heading now. Assurance is ours when we are moved to love the brethren. So you can see my my headings are about being moved. The first one is being moved to be like God. This one now, this proof, is that we are moved to love the brethren, starting verse 11. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that ye love one another. Now, you just can't read First John and get away from this whole emphasis of the book on loving one another, loving the brethren, loving the needy. And he that is born of God, the automatic outcome is that we love the brother. Now, I've told the story about John when he was an old man, how he was carried from place to place and into the churches, and he would go along and he would say, love one another. My little children, love one another. And he was asked, why do you keep repeating that? And he goes, and when that one thing is done, all is done. Christian service, Christian fellowship, Christian walking comes down to the love of God constraining us to love and to serve one another. And John, of course, was really following the Lord's 11th commandment uh, in John 13. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples when ye love one another. Or again in chapter 1 John 3, 11, that's where we're at here. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that ye should love one another. Now, the Lord Jesus' great demonstration of his fulfilling this command was to wash the disciples' feet. And he took the disciples after their long walk, entering the home filthy and dirty, dusty. And he took the towel and the basin and literally washed their feet. Now, if we were asked tonight to remove our shoes and have our feet washed, who would want to do it? Some feet in this meeting are not all that pretty may not be as dusty and dirty as the disciples' feet, I hope. But it is a very low place of humble service. To which even Peter objected for a bit. The Lord demonstrated in a very tangible way his demonstration of loving the brethren. Now, we do not practice foot washing in our denomination. 
we take this as a principle that we are to take on as needed the most menial, humble task in helping our fellow believers in the church, out of the church, wherever we may, to encourage them, to serve them with our time, at times with our money, sacrificially, and that nothing is too much. Now, I know there's abuses and people want to take advantage of things, but we'll not get into that. But there are always needs among the people of God. And we are called to love one another. The worldly cardinal man will not want to do it. But if you are moved to serve the church of Christ, the people of God, or as a witness to the lost, and I think we have to include this, that this is wider than just born-again brothers and sisters. It could be a family member. It could be a neighbor, a friend. And by this all men know that ye are my disciples when ye love one another. Jesus said so. Now, this is a tremendous proof, because in verse 12, John gives the illustration of Cain and Abel, the difference in these two brothers. What caused the hatred in Cain's heart? Well, it was Abel's worship, Abel's acceptance with God, and he was able to truly say, I am a child of God. I am a believer in the gospel of blood, atonement. I have, therefore, peace with God. And Abel's new status, it put a difference between him and his own flesh and blood brother. And Abel would have been accused of boasting of his acceptance with God. And Cain would have none of it. Now, I want you to notice the three steps from brotherhood to murder. It says here in this verse 12, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one who slew his brother. Wherefore slew he him? Here's the question. Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. What a change. What a dramatic change. What an amazing conversion. We're passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So you go from brotherhood to a breach and then not loving, and then murder. There's a very short step between true love, deciding I cannot love, hate, and murder. They're all linked. 
And that can happen to us. It can happen in the persecution of the Christian. John said, marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. And the hatred or persecution of the world is another proof that you're a child of God. If when you, like Abel, testify, I am God's child, I am saved, I am a Christian, I have peace with God, that's going to offend the world. And that former friendship will be turned to lack of love, to hatred. And sometimes it even turns to they have to get you out of their sight. They can't stand your company anymore, as happened to Abel. Now, around the world, in all cultures and all peoples, this persecution against Christians is a common factor. If you go to Nepal, it is illegal to evangelize. It's predominantly um, Buddhist and mixed with Hindu. But the government has ruled that you cannot go out into the streets and evangelize. And there is hostility against the Christian gospel. Where does that come from? What are they afraid of? Has the Christian gospel not done so much for that country? What are they afraid of? There is this hatred and it turns to persecution. If you go to Kenya, and I'm visiting the, the, the missionary stations that we know about. In Kenya, in political election time, things are so tenuous that churches and pastors have to be exceedingly careful that they don't get caught up in accusations of political interference. And they walk a tightrope. And there is hostility from native tribes and various groupings against Christianity. In Uganda, well, it's like the pendulum from persecution to acceptance. This week, I think it was, they just ruled to outlaw sodomy. Wonderful. We would say amen to that. And yet on the mission field, surrounded by Muslim people, there's a very fine line to walk. I was in Sri Lanka in 2013. I went up into the tea plantations. We had a Saturday evening gospel service. And we walked our way from the foot of a hillside where there was a fine church building of brick and mortar built by the people. They carried the materials up to the top of the hill. On the way up, we walked past a Muslim family. And there was a whole bunch of kids out there looking at us, seeing who we were and so on. But they weren't allowed to receive a word closed to the gospel. In Monrovia, in Liberia, where the Reverend Dave DeCanio was preaching, and he's got a wonderful opportunity with the 24-7 radio ministry. It's an amazing opportunity. 
But again, it's a tightrope walk that you don't offend not just the authorities, but the other religions. And it is a hostile environment. Mexico. Well, I think we all know the powers of Rome and how they would like to strangle the life of the gospel. Canada. We liken Canada to a mosaic, but there is a Christian decline. The voice of the church is less and less, and all the more to silence the gospel. Here in the USA, the liberal woke LGBTQ agenda is a persecuting agenda. You either join them, align with them, become an ally with them, or you're silenced. That's the tragedy. You may have read the news about the San Jose Sharks hockey goalie. His name is James Reimer. And I take interest because he's from Manitoba, a Mennonite family. And he's a Christian. And he's been a very popular hockey player. And somehow the San Jose Sharks hired him to play as their goalie. And this week he refused to wear a a jersey that would identify him as supporting the gay agenda. I don't know what the badge or the colors or the format was. Probably a rainbow. And all opposition broke out against him. Now they're still holding on to him as their goalie, thankfully. But this is the real world we live in. Now, which side are you on? Are you a Cain or an Abel? Are you in love with the brethren, willing to be persecuted alongside your brethren? Pay the price as a Christian, taking up the cross as his disciple. Or are you saying, leave me alone, I'm out of that. And here... John is saying in very practical terms, by this we know that we are born of God. Now how far should this love to fellow Christians go? Well, let's read John 3.16. First John 3.16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's how far we should go. And there's not one of us here tonight who have loved our fellow men, women, brothers and sisters as we ought. We ought to hang our heads in shame and say, I've been a very poor model of loving as God loved me. How much is a husband to love his wife? Paul said, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's how we're to serve our wives. Now, of course, that's a very 
unique, special covenant bond between a husband and wife. And that ought to be very much expected. Whether you open the car door for your wife to let her in or not. But is this kind of love expected to the brethren? That we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters? How does this play out in real life church community? I would say anything that discourages your brother and sister, flee from it. Any lifestyle or activity that brings into question your commitment to the brotherhood and sisterhood of the gospel, flee from it. And you ought to be actively, positively seeking ways to show your love in acts of service, in saying to someone at the very how can I pray for you? Wouldn't that be a, a wonderful demonstration of what we're learning here in this chapter? It's a great question, you know. I use it in pastoral visits. I try always never to leave a home with asking, without asking, how can I pray for you? Or how can we as the church pray for you? And that gets down to the reality of where a person's at and where their struggles are, what their problems are, and and where we might be of some assistance. And maybe it's of a nature you can't do much more than pray. Or it might be a ministry of practical service in some way. Now the Lord said, let this mind be, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. And he went on to speak of the Lord Jesus, who though he was equal with God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, humbled himself and took upon him the form of a servant. That's Christianity. And if it was right for the Lord, it's right for me and you. Now, what about it this week? Is this your attitude as a Christian? And if you're saying tonight, I I really want to. I'm not sure where to begin, but I really want to. I want to have that kind of Christian love. I want to have that kind of Christian service in my life. I want it to be useful to the people of God. And that's a great evidence that you're born of God. But if you're saying, oh, this is all ridiculous. What a waste of time and effort and gifts and talents for me to just to to serve. Then it proves the opposite. We move to number three tonight, and that's verse 18. We have another way in which we are moved when we are born of God. My little children, let us not love in word neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We're to love in a true fashion, not just empty words or platitudes, but in real ways from a full heart of love with God and genuine love 
for our brethren and sisters. As we read on, verse 19, this is played out. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now, that word, our hearts condemn us, simply means our hearts speaking out. There is inside of you a little preacher, and he is not a paid pastor, he is not a denominational pastor, he is your conscience. And whatever you do and whatever you say, there is a continual and often an immediate assessment or judgment of your deeds and your actions, whether they are true, right, or wrong. It's that inner preacher. And the born-again Christian has a much more acute conscience that is alive unto God, listens to God, it hears the voice of God, and it will be controlled by righteousness. The Christian that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit puts his or her acts, words, and thoughts in the balances of truth and will soon know if we be found wanting. Now, I wrote that out for myself. I wanted to be able to state that clearly. Do you get it? There's a preacher condemning you when you say one thing and don't do it or do another thing. And so when we profess that we are in the church, we're in the body, we love you, we want to be alongside you, then there's going to be serving in deed and in truth. And verse 21, it says, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, you've got a quiet conscience, then have we confidence toward God then we have assurance, then we have blessed peace, and we are abounding in the joy and fellowship with the Lord. And we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Verse 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. That's loving in deed and truth. And wow, What a fellowship. It leads us to the place of prayer. Whatsoever we ask. Verse 22, whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. And so when you come to pray and you bring your petitions to the throne of God, you do not have that little preacher condemning and witnessing and hindering you in your prayer life. You have a freedom now. There is a silence in your heart. There is the witness that you are doing those things that please God, and you can come freely in the power of prayer. Now, John enumerates two things that our hearts will speak of and approve. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And love one another. There's the two things. Believe on the Son 
and love one another. They are the two imperatives of a clear conscience, of pleasing our Heavenly Father when we love and trust in His Son and we love our brethren. Now I close very quickly. How come it's not enough just that we love God? How come we're not just commanded that as God has loved us, now we love him in return? And we do. We do love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's our desire. But this doesn't call us to love God. It calls us to love our brethren. Because how did God love us? While we were yet sinners, ugly, depraved, and deformed in sin. That's how God set his love upon us. And we are to love the ugly, even the depraved, and the whirling in their worldly ways. We love them for their soul's sake. We hate their ways, but we love their souls. And when it comes to the Christian, Christians are not perfect. Mr. Schapler and I met a man yesterday and he said that fellow Christians give us the greatest hurts of all. But we're still to love our brethren. This is the command. This is the proof of a new nature. And even though that person's a, a kind of a nasty attitude about things and we don't like the attitude, we still love him for Christ's sake and pray that he will get through that and turn around and be changed more and more into the image of the Lord. And when we see the ugliness in a fellow Christian, our prayer is, Lord, change him. Change her. There's power in your grace to change even the ugly soul. The one who changes us is the Holy Ghost. And down in verse 24, you'll notice that this is his work. Hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. And there again is the proof that we are changed and saved. Assurance. A little girl was spoken to by her Sunday school teacher. And the little girl wanted to be saved. And the Sunday school teacher wisely opened the Bible and showed her John 1.12. As many as received him uh, believe on him and they become the sons of God. And the teacher asked the little girl, do you believe that? And the little girl said, yes, I believe that. And she prayed, asked the Lord to save her. And then the teacher asked, do you know what that verse now means? And the little girl means that I am saved. And the teacher said, how do you know? And she pointed to John, first, John's Gospel, chapter 112. I know it because of this verse, and I know it in my heart. There is an experience to conversion. It's an inner witness of the Spirit. 
Now, it always agrees with the word. It always aligns with the truth of scripture. The spirit of God is always the spirit of truth. And he takes that word and he sows it in our hearts. He waters it and makes it to grow and abound. That we in turn bring forth the fruit of the spirit. So I hope you've got the three headings tonight. That we are moved to be like God. We are moved to love the brethren. And we are moved to love in deed and in truth. And the Holy Spirit works it in us. And our prayer has to be, Lord, do it over and over again. Do it all the more. Change me more and more into the likeness of the Lord. What is the result of wonderful assurance in God's salvation? We become better Christians. We become more active, serving Christians. As you know, we are going to San Francisco, and I'm looking forward to seeing the Golden Gate Bridge. It is 1.7 miles long. When they were building that bridge, in the first half or the first stage of building, there were 23 men who lost their lives building that bridge. And then they stopped the work, and they erected a large net. It cost $100,000 whatever date that was, and from then on, it saved 10 men's lives. But the work went on much quicker because men could work in the assurance it's not going to cost them their lives. The work was done more happily, more ably, without fear. And because we have in our hearts tonight assurance of salvation, doesn't mean we lie back, but we serve all the more with blessed assurance within our hearts.